everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we'll be web-swinging our way through the multiverse and into a conversation over this year's biggest film to date. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be discussing Spider-Man No Way Home. How, here's how the conversation is going to go. We're going to start with a couple of short icebreaker questions so that you can get to know our guests a little bit more, as well as our biases towards uh, everyone's favorite webhead. Uh, and then we'll do a very short, abbreviated, spoiler-free review where we'll just give you a quick thumbs up, thumbs down, and maybe like some very vague things we liked or disliked about it uh, before we'll move into a, an in-depth spoiler section where we're probably going to be spending the majority of today's conversation. Now, uh, a review of such a a huge event film, the biggest we've had in 2021, honestly, the biggest one we've had since 2019, Star Wars, um, The Rise of Skywalker, at least if the box office is um, the way we measure that. Uh, this is the biggest one, so we, we couldn't do it without uh, a few different uh, friends from across the movie reviewer multiverse today. Uh, <laughs> so first up, I'm so thrilled to welcome back our friend Chelsea Ratterman from Geek Girl Features. Chelsea, welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, Chelsea, of course, has been really just giving us the rundown of most of the the, the biggest superhero films. Uh, definitely this year. I mean, Chelsea, you did you did you, you sat through the Snyder Cut with us. Uh, you did uh, the Suicide Squad earlier this year. Oh, Wonder Woman last year. Uh, Wonder Woman yes. 1984. Uh, so so happy that you could uh, return to us for yet another uh, big superhero event film. Finally, a Marvel one too. I feel like I've been over in like DC land for a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, that's going to bring me to our introduction of our next guest here. I'm so excited to welcome back uh, Arthur Gordon from Good Trash Media. Arthur, welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Well, hello, and thank you for having me tonight. Uh, well, uh, it's a real pleasure, Arthur. I, I know you've, you know, you have a real affinity for, uh, you know, the, the, the wall crawl was, sorry, I'm going to get this wrong. You're, the wall crawler. Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man. Um, so I, I really just wanted to take the opportunity to, uh, let's, let's, do, let's do an old fashioned Spider-Man review. I mean, it's like 20 years in the making at this point. So it let's is. do it. Before we do get into today's review, I did want to quickly note that if you are listening to the show today and you enjoy the conversation, please take the time. Give us a really wonderful Christmas gift by supporting the show and subscribing or following the podcast, the cinematic schematic and leaving us a rating and review on your preferred podcast app. In fact, newsflash newsflash. I always used to talk about how you should do it on Apple podcasts because you know, that was the only really the only major platform featuring reviews. Well, as of Friday, uh, you can now leave ratings, no reviews, but ratings on Spotify. So again, Give us uh, head on over to Apple if you're an Apple listener. Give us that five star, or if you're listening on Spotify, be an early adopter of the Spotify reviews by uh, giving us a five star rating there as well. And let's get to our icebreaker questions today. And Spider Man is just a character who means so much to so many of us. Uh, of course, the three of us here on the podcast today. So I thought we might start by just asking the question so our listeners can become acquainted with our preferences on Spider Man. Who is your favorite Spider-Man of the screen and why? And I should also clarify here that this doesn't necessarily have to be a film Spider-Man. So, yes, it could be Tobey Maguire. It could be Andrew Garfield. But there are also a wide variety of other Spider-Men or Spider-People that you could be choosing from. So with all that said, Chelsea Raderman, I'm going to turn to you first. Who is your favorite Spider-Man? I think, you know, I've had to like kind of think a little about this, especially 
in regards to like our, our big three, our like live action ones. Um, I really think Andrew Garfield is my favorite. He really, he just feels kind of like he captures that, like the feeling and the emotion of Spider-Man for me a lot. And he's got that, like, he's got the scientific thing going on, but he's also like wisecracking. So it just feels like they really kind of understood what they were doing with the character for his movies. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Andrew Garfield, I feel like of the people playing Spider-Man, definitely seemed the most uh, enthusiastic about uh, embracing the role. I mean, Tom Holland's Mm -hmm. been, I don't know, it's pretty tough because Tom Holland's been pretty vocal about how much he likes it. But Tom Holland, by the way, the best part about this movie coming out is that soon Tom Holland will not be in every news headline that comes across my Twitter timeline. (laughs) Um, because he's, he's gone from Spider-Man's the greatest ever to, I'm thinking about retiring from acting all within 48 hours, but he also has had varying degrees of enthusiasm for the, for the Mm Spider-Man. Um, but yeah, Andrew Garfield's a great choice, Chelsea. And, uh, it's a shame the movies weren't quite up to Andrew Garfield's level, which we'll talk about probably a little more today. Really weren't. Uh, but now I want to turn the microphone over to my friend, Arthur Gordon. So Arthur, who is your favorite screen Spider-Man? Uh, for me, I've, I've really got to think, and I, I just rewatched every, all of these last week and I think total package, it is Tom Holland. Um, I think Toby is a great Peter Parker and I think Andrew Garfield is a great in the suit as Spider-Man, the quips, the moves, the way he handles that. And even some of the stuff they do as far as like spider sense, I think all that is handled really well, uh, with Garfield, but I think Tom Holland brings it all together in a total package. I, I think he's got a lot of those elements that make Toby so good. Uh, and he also has a lot of the elements that make Garfield so good. And I think as a total package for me, it's Tom Holland. I think I really like is he has that really youthful energy. Whereas, yeah. you know, Peter Parker, you know, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, which was great, you know, its own version. But it it, it felt a little more happy go lucky. And obviously that both him and Andrew Garfield looked a little older uh, when they were cast. They were both in their mid 20s when they were cast. Marvel definitely knows how to cast them when it comes to their superheroes. So Tom Holland is another great pick. I'm going to go with a couple. I will say of the three, Andrew Garfield is going to be my favorite. Uh, I just I felt like he had. A certain amount of enthusiasm he brought to the role. Uh, his Peter Parker definitely is a different take than what, you know, I think is con- we, how we commonly think of Spider-Man. It was sort of going for that, like, follow the dark knife, the edgy vibe. And sometimes that works, sometimes it didn't. But I loved Andrew Garfield in the costume. And I just think, again, his enthusiasm for wanting to play the role really shined through both films, despite the fact that the material he was he was given to work with was not always great. Uh, But I also want to give a shout out to my favorite Spider-Man animated series, which is the Spectacular Spider-Man. In that that, uh, series, uh, Spider-Man, Peter Parker was voiced by Josh Keaton. And this is a little, a lot of people, especially in my era, probably grew up thinking of the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, which has a real soft spot in my heart as well. But I really liked this version because it felt almost like a um, Batman the Animated Series, but for Spider-Man. It was kind of of that level. The writing felt like it was way too good for a children's cartoon. The characterization was really, really strong. They kind of wrestled with some darker themes there. Uh, And then, unfortunately, whenever uh, Disney bought Marvel, there was some sort of snafu with the contracts or whatever. But so anyway, that that series got canceled. Despite it actually being very popular and critically well-received, 
uh, was axed after just two seasons. Um, so the spectacular Spider-Man, there are so many Spider-Man cartoons out there. So I'll say it one more time. The spectacular Spider-Man aired uh, roughly, I think it was 2008, 2009, 2010, somewhere in that era. Uh, quite good if you can find it on your favorite streaming service. Arthur, I'm going to turn it back to you here because you, you've already sort of voiced how much you really appreciate Tom Holland as Spider-Man, the whole package. So overall, I mean, have you been pretty satisfied with how Marvel has handled Spider-Man before seeing No Way Home? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, I think that there was a lot that could go wrong with this kind of co-production between Sony and Marvel. And there's you know so many kind of chefs in that kitchen. Uh, but I, I think it was handled with great tact uh, up until uh, where we are today. Um, I, I, I think they do a great job with Spider-Man and reintroducing him in a way that doesn't reiterate that origin story like we see so many times with Batman. And so that's kind of felt like a fresh take. You know, they really lean into those coming of age 80s John Hughes films, which is a nice, fun aesthetic for the, the for the movies. Uh, I, I like the the spider bond element of uh, Far From Home when they've got the globe trotting thing going on. Uh, and I think it feels like it fits within the MCU, but it also feels different enough from everything else within the MCU, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, again, going back to, I think, uh, the youthful energy that Tom Holland brings, I think really yeah. brings anytime he's on the screen, like the energy, uh, just goes through the roof in a good way too. I mean, yeah. it's something that frankly was much needed uh, he, he, for civil war and he really, uh, infinity war. And he really channels, I think that Michael J Fox thing, which a lot of people have connected, but I think he channels some of what Toby brings as well with that kind of naive starstruck nerdishness he has. Uh, as well as I, I think there's a little bit of Hugh Grant's bumbling uh, Britishness in there as well. Uh, and I, I, I really like that. I've never even thought about Hugh Grant. But that's a great that's a great a parallel. I think there's some of that in there. Uh, Chelsea, uh, I'll turn to you. What, what has been your overall take on, you, you know, how the Marvel Cinematic Universe has handled Spider-Man and Peter Parker? I think they've handled him. They've handled him like obviously really well. I mean, Marvel, I think, really did not fail at all in, with hiring Tom Holland and having him play this character. He's super earnest. He's, you know, he captures all that energy. Um, I just don't know if Spider-Man hit when I was like kind of in like my low point with Marvel. And I'm like, I'm super hype. It's Spider-Man. Like, I'm really excited. But I'm like, I just don't know if he's like left that much of a mark for me. And I think it's just like the fatigue of the whole thing. But um, I, I think he's great. He, they definitely did not miss the mark. And I'm really excited to see where they go in the future with him because they did cast him kind of at that ideal age where he's really like in that high school um, kind of era and he's going to gonna get to go and we're going to watch him grow up and take all these lessons he's learning in these last three movies into the next ones. Um, so it's really, they can only grow with him at this point. Yeah. You know, I think um, the thing that sticks out to me about uh, Tom Holland, uh, as you referenced there, Chelsea, he's got great energy. I, I did feel like there's been certain elements of the character that they haven't it's not that he hasn't nailed. They haven't really. We're going to get into it in this review. That have been somewhat missing. There's uh He's almost a little. And again, I want to. I want to be careful how I say this because I. What I think is his great strength is the, the upbeat energy and everything is is also in some ways I feel like is what's been missing from the characters. Sort of that struggle between I have all these responsibilities, but also. I am Spider-Man. They kind of, they get at it a little bit and with, you know, the especially like the high school elements, uh, they did a really great job uh, in homecoming of sort of like putting that tension between, I really want to take this girl to homecoming, but also her dad's the bad guy. What, you know, 
So like they, I think maybe it's just the, the stakes have been lower, but there hasn't been like that. In order to achieve happiness, I have to make these large personal sacrifices. I, I don't feel like I've been quite on display as much. And the thing is, I think uh, as we'll get into in this film, they're certainly taking him uh, in that direction. I'm really excited to see what they do with the character next. Uh, and they and they definitely get at it with this film. So I think in, just in those first two entries, that was something that I, I felt like was was missing a little bit um, from the character. But again, circling back to what you were saying, Arthur, I, I think that that actually allowed them to do a lot of things that were missing from the previous two iterations. Um, so it's sort of like a, I want to have my cake and eat it too. If you combine all three of them together, we get like the ultimate perfect version. But um, no, I think Tom Holland's been great. Um, and as we'll get to into this film, um, I think he has a lot more kind of wrestles a little more with the tragedy that we haven't seen as much uh, in, in the previous two films. Okay. So last icebreaker question here for you guys. Who is one Spider-Man villain that you'd like to see realized on the big screen? Uh, either, and, and I'll actually give you this too. Maybe you want to see a character done again because you weren't super pleased with how they were done on the big screen. And Arthur, I'll turn it to you for this one. Uh, I think in my heart of hearts, I, I, I've always wanted to see the Scorpion. Uh, I would have said Mysterio, but we got a great Mysterio. Uh, so Scorpion's probably the, the one. I, I always thought he was just the coolest as a kid, and I don't know what it was about him. Uh, I just thought he was fun to watch, uh, but I don't know if he'd be a A tier villain. He feels kind of like a B tier villain unless they did something a lot smaller scale like they did with Vulture. Uh, and I think if they did uh, ramp it up a bit, I think Craven Hunter is the uh, is the one to go with. So. Oh, man. Uh, so so I, there's some I saw somewhere on the Internet. Uh, please cast Pedro Pascal as Craven the Hunter. And I was <laughs> like, holy cow, that sounds like really an fun. amazing choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Craven's a great choice. Um, I I too still secretly want to see the uh, the Sinister Six, and maybe that maybe both of them could factor into that somehow. But uh, yeah. save that for another day. Chelsea, who is one villain that you would like to see adapted to the the big screen? So I really have to get on the like tangent of we really have only seen female characters that are the love interest or the parental mm-hmm. figure really in this, and all three franchises that we've had so i think i'm ready just like let's bring in black cat let's just establish her get her in here and let's have some some you know some girl power yeah can we can we cast uh, anya taylor joy as black cat too (laughs) while we're at it i would love that nope i'm here i'm on board just i don't just get her in there (laughs) yep it's it's kind of that's great black cat's got her legs cut out twice now i I know she was originally supposed to be in spider-man 4 and then this what, gold and silver or black and silver that they're mm-hmm. going to do with silver sable. Yep. But, yep. Yeah. Black cat's a good, a good pick. That's a great pick. And there's like a whole story. I mean, especially if they incorporate her origin into it, there's actually quite a bit of really awesome potential there. I think just, they could really build a whole movie around her and like kind of her family ties to the mob. And yeah, anyway, they're setting her up. I'm, I'm feeling good. Um, there was kind of that like Easter egg in the Morbius trailer. So maybe Sony's mm-hmm. going that direction. I keep forgetting Morbius is a movie that really exists, but no, it's it in the graveyard and it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to see it purely because Michael Keaton appears as the vulture in the movie. <laughs> it just destroys all the timelines that they've tried to establish, but sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. We're going to get into that later. Actually. I have, I have, I have thoughts about that, but okay. 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 Uh, I'm just going to throw out there uh, just to piggyback off of uh, you threw down there with Scorpion uh, Arthur. 
I and I I I really want to see the Sinister Six, and you can't really have the Sinister Six without Kingpin. And Vincent D'Onofrio has already done a fabulous job in Daredevil as the Kingpin. I always thought it was super cool. I I, I don't know. I have a, a thing for like criminal masterminds who are like above and playing in the shadows and stuff like that. So I I, I would really love to see them bring him into the fold and fight Spider Man. I know that. Uh, not spoil. I'm trying to be careful. I know that Vincent D'Onofrio was officially in the MCU. There was some debate for a while about whether or not he was in the MCU official, uh, whether the Netflix shows were technically MCU, but uh, it turns out lo and behold, uh, he is so still on the, it could still be in the cards. We'll see. We'll see. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, those are uh, just a, a few different tidbits about uh, our, myself and our guest today. Uh, just so you can know a little bit more about our backstory and history with Spider-Man. With all that said, let's go ahead and move into our spoiler-free review of Spider-Man No Way Home. Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man. We started getting some visitors. From every universe. Hello, Peter. Peter Parker. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Dr. Otto Octavius. <laughs> Wait, no, seriously, what's your actual name? So according to IMDb, Spider-Man No Way Home is described as, with Spider-Man's identity now revealed, Peter asks Dr. Strange for help. When a spell goes wrong, dangerous foes from other worlds start to appear, forcing Peter to discover what it truly means to be Spider-Man. And again, I just want to quickly note that given all the secrecy around the film and potential spoilers, we're going to keep the spoiler-free discussion very, very short. So with that said, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Arthur really quick, just to give us a quick thumbs up, thumbs down. Like, what did you like or what didn't you like about the movie? Arthur? Spider-Man No Way Home. What is your spoiler-free verdict here? Yeah, so what I like, I enjoy the cast. I think everyone uh, present is doing fine work. I, I think there's a really good chemistry between the three friends, uh, Peter, Ned, and MJ. Uh, I love seeing Alfred Molina again. Uh, he's, he's just so good. Uh, I think the pacing is, is is really strong. We have that kind of die-hard schematic where something is almost always happening or being introduced, uh, which just really moves us along. And I like the look of the film, the action, the visuals. I have to say, rewatching all of the Spider-Man movies, uh, the things Sony did, I feel like those amazing Spider-Man movies and the uh, the two Tom Holland movies just look so much better than a lot of other studio movies right now, especially stuff from Disney. I feel like visual effects are just kind of in a holding pattern with Disney and Jungle Cruise is one I'm thinking of recently where it just looked terrible. Um, but I, I really do think these movies look uh, head and shoulders above the rest of the MCU stuff we've seen. Um, and so I, I really do appreciate that about it. What I didn't care for, I, I think 
that this isn't a movie with a lot of story uh, and what it does have kind of flops a bit. I, I think there's some things that just happen and then just trail off because of where we're going with the story uh, set pieces and action set pieces. Um, so I think we'll come back to that later. And then some things fall a bit flat for me, particularly one emotional beat and then some of the Doctor Strange stuff. But I know we'll be getting back to that, too. So that's where I'm at with it. Okay, but overall, it's pretty positive thoughts. Awesome. Chelsea, I'm going to turn it to you here. What did you think? uh, What did you like and what did you not like about Spider-Man No Way Home? I mean, so just off the bat, we don't love how our little our inconsistent logic we have going on, like right out of the gate. But you know what? It's okay. (laughs) Um, I love the movie. I you. It's such a callback to our other franchises that you just have to love that like feeling of nostalgia as you're watching it and you're seeing all of our villains. Um, and but what they've really done with this movie is I think that they've really teed up um, Spider-Man in his more traditional sense, I guess. We've really seen him tied mostly to the Avengers and things like that. Um, but we're really seeing him grow and I'm really excited to see what they get to do with the, the events of this film where they, where we go with it. And then that actually ties into one of the things I like about it, uh, Chelsea, which is I mentioned earlier, it felt like there were certain elements, some of the more tragic elements of the character that we hadn't really had never been. Like, like for example, uncle Ben has been, I think there's been like, there was like one line in one of the movies. There was like a nod to it, I think. But the thing I, one of the things I like about this film is it really feels like in, in many ways, the conclusion of the Spider-Man home trilogy is really the end of the origin story and the beginning of like whatever they're going to do with the character next. And it feels pretty good. It ends a, it ends uh, emotionally in a really strong place. At least it did for me. Other things I really liked. Uh, I, again, I love the fan service. There's a lot of it. I am a fan. Gosh, even the movies that aren't the best, I, I still love them. I still love the I love the character and and this movie really I feel like rewards me as a fan of Spider-Man uh, of over 20 years. It says, "Hey, that this investment you made was was worthwhile." And by that I mean there's a lot of things to get to in spoilers, but Alfred Molina being a great example. He is incredible in Spider-Man 2 and he just steps right back into the role like he never left here. Uh Willem Dafoe, who I I I will all hail Willem Dafoe. I think he his, cack, his cackling Green Goblin. I just can't get enough of it. I know some people might think it's way over the top. It might be a little too ham-fisted, but I, I really enjoy sort of like the theatric, more theatrical performance uh, of, of the original film. And here, I, I honestly feel like the Green Goblin gets even more to do in this film than maybe he did the original film. Again, being vague, things I didn't like. I felt like it was a little too long. Um, despite to Arthur's point, there not being a ton of rock solid story. I felt like things happened because they needed to happen because we needed to get the fan service. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying I'm mad about it because the things we got ultimately for me was a plus, but it, I, you kind of see the gears a little bit. You kind of see behind the curtain. And if you're paying attention, you're like, wait a second, this, this seems a little weird. And, and it, so you can kind of see the gears turning throughout it. And so I wouldn't say it's the strongest story. And on that note, this is not necessarily a criticism of this film. And we'll get more detailed to what I mean here in a minute, but in a lot of ways, it feels like it abandons sort of the underlying larger story they had established in Homecoming and Far From Home. This movie feels more like a celebration of Spider-Man 
but let more about that and less like a, a conclusion of a, a, a story, at least for the large part, I feel like it's pretty torn between doing those things. And because of it, I think uh, ultimately the, the film is a little lesser for it, but all that said, let's give it a letter grade. Chelsea, I'll give it to you first. I, I mean, I have to give it an A. I did. I left the auditorium just buzzed about the whole thing. I loved every moment of it. Um, and yeah, I think they just did a great job. And A guys, A plus. <laughs> Chelsea is happy Spider-Man fan. Uh, Arthur, how about you? <laughs> uh, I think where I'm at right now, it may go up or down on a rewatch, but I'm probably sitting at a B plus. Uh, there were just a few moments that did feel flat, and there may be some other factors that are working against it there uh, from a personal perspective. Uh, but so right now, I'd say B plus. I think that's fair. I think if if I was not a, a big uh, Spider-Man fan, I'd probably give like a C, but I am, so I'm going to give it a B uh, because the emotional beats really 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 worked i don't know if they're how are they going to work for everyone especially people who haven't seen you know all the other spider-man films pre-mcu i i just think those moments really are are so strong and so impactful if they raise it up by uh, by like a full letter grade um okay and i would say we'll also toss out some other recommendations so if you have seen no way home i'm also going to recommend if you happen to have access to a playstation 4 playstation 5 keep the spidey hype going play the spider-man marvel spider-man from 2018 it's an excellent game it's one of the finest superhero games out there uh so it's around i think around roughly 20 hours of gameplay with a really strong story that incorporates a lot of the characters featured in this film and if you like spider-man i think you're gonna be in for a real treat there and uh, Chelsea, I'll pass it to you. What is another recommendation you'd have for people who enjoy Spider-Man No Way Home? So for the obvious world building that we're having here, if you haven't seen Loki, check out Loki. There's mm-hmm. things that are happening in this movie. They're kind of happening over there. And you want to make sure everything matches up. Um, but kind of as like a different thing, maybe check out Doctor Who. Um, this new season that they're doing is kind of doing a little bit of that multiversal action. Um and it's, it's like six episodes this season is, so it's super compact. Just check it out. Um, and I really loved it. So Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, Do- Doctor Who's a great recommendation. Just just if you're getting into the MCU, uh, the direction we're heading in definitely feels like more into Doctor Who town, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Arthur Gordon, how about you? What else would you recommend to listeners who enjoy Spider-Man No Way Home? I highly recommend giving the Andrew Garfield two for another go. Uh, I, I would really go to bat for those movies on any day. Um, I think... If you really want to kind of dive into Spidey, my big introduction to comic books and Spider-Man was the 94 cartoon, uh, along with, you know, Batman and X-Men of that time period. And so I'd say go watch Spidey, uh, the original 94 Spider-Man cartoon that's on Disney+. Plus. It's a great dive into the, the stories and to the rogues gallery. Uh, and it's just a lot of fun. So that's that's my recommendation. Oh, man, the voice of Peter Parker in that one was, was so fun. I, I th- that one felt like it had like more like a like a college age uh, Peter Parker. Yeah, but man. And he's he's huge. Like he's just <laughs> jacked. Yeah. Jacked Spider-Man. Like whenever Eddie Brock shows up, they had to make Eddie Brock like a full blown like Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque bodybuilder so he could be bigger than Spider-Man. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, great recommendations here. Uh, again, listeners, we're going to be spending the majority of our conversation today in the spoiler section. So if you do not want to be spoiled on Spider-Man No Way Home, go ahead and tune out now. 
Whoa. What the? I'm Spider-Man. I need you to come with Who me. Who the heck are you? I, I just told you that. Listen, listen. I'm from the future. How dare you point at me? You, you were pointing first. It's rude to point. You're being very rude. You're not even believing what Which I'm saying. Which one pointed first? Spider-Man pointed first. Obviously. You're pointing at me right now as you say you're that. Pointing. Look at you. I'm Look just at pointing your at your pointing. Look at your finger right different now. different than normal you pointing. You haven't seen You're accusing me of pointing while you're... All right, so here in the spoiler section, I'm going to get through as many of uh, the, the questions and topics as we can today. There's so much to unpack in this movie, guys. Uh, again, full-blown spoilers, but let's just say it. We get Tobey Maguire. Uh, we get Andrew Garfield. Probably the worst kept secret. We're going to get to that here in a minute, but I just want to get that out there. Spoilers, ahoy. Uh, it's The gloves are off. <laughs> uh, I actually want to start, though, with how this film, how well this film follows up Far from home, because uh, as you recall, and this film recaps it again at the very beginning as the opening uh, title cards appear, Far from Home ended with a, a couple of pretty big mic drops. I remember when I saw the movie, I was like, holy cow, this is these are pretty big. It's like a, mm-hmm. dropping a bomb here. We got Peter Parker's identity was revealed to the world. Uh, number one. And then number two, out of nowhere, uh, a different version of J. Jonah Jameson exists in the MCU, but uh, he's, uh, you know, still played by the same um, beloved actor from the original Sam Raimi films. So uh, J.K. Simmons, of course, is back. So I guess the, the question I just want to kick it off and I'll turn to you, Arthur, on this one. I mean, does this story really feel like a proper continuation of what had been set in motion in the first two films? Did, did, it, did, that, did it work for you? Do you think I missed any beats? What, what did you think, Arthur? I think by and large, yes. It, it doesn't feel like a surprise zag when they were zigging or anything. It feels consistent. You know, they introduce obviously at the end of Far From Home this idea of Peter Parker, Spider Man. They've they've taken the mask off, and this kind of just drops us in media array as a direct continuation of that. Uh, and so that and that whole question kind of drives the the plot narrative here of how do we resolve this idea of people knowing I'm Spider Man, I'm Peter Parker. So I, I think that all works. I, I think we've had enough here that it does feel like a different enough universe. So Jonah's transference makes sense to me. Uh, I think they dropped some balls with the uh, interrogating Spider-Man as a murderer. That feels like the means to an end to introduce uh, one person in particular, and then we just don't deal with it anymore uh, once he's gone. Uh, And after that lawyer shows up, he just kind of gets swept under the rug. Uh, But I think from a narrative standpoint, it, it does kind of naturally follow right along with it. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, Arthur, we yeah, we can go ahead and, and, and mention it now too. I mean, uh, the the fact that like there's this whole is Spider Man a murderer criminal, and then they bring in Charlie Cox uh, for you know um, playing um, Daredevil uh, in this show. I mean, that, that's a pretty big pretty big reveal, though. I mean, I know it was all the internet, all this stuff had leaked, whatever. But I was honestly pretty skeptical because Marvel's actually uh, Kevin Feige, especially, has played it very close to the chest whether or not the Netflix shows are actually a part of the yeah. MCU. So whenever he showed up, I was like, holy cow. Yeah, I was very excited. I I love Daredevil. So that that was cool. But it it did kind of just feel like like you mentioned earlier, the gears kind of seeing the gears turn. And it felt like one of those moments for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because like you said, like there's like about five minutes of build up and then the scene's done. He shows up and then he's gone. And then, like you said, it's it's a non-factor. Yeah. Chelsea, how about you? I mean, what did you think of this as a follow up to Far From Home? It does work as a follow-up from Far From Home narratively because we've seen Spider-Man unmasked. We're dealing with those repercussions. Um, I do the murder plotline was obviously like, like he, like Arthur said, they introduced it, they introduced the character, and then it was like kind of never existed again. We saw some like public opinion things, um, 
but this movie feels bigger than the other two because we've introduced that multiverse threat, the Doctor Doctor Strange action. Um, and I think that as we've seen the stakes grow, I think it's not serving Spider-Man as well. Um, but I think that Marvel maybe understands that and wants to see the character go back to its like friendly neighborhood Spider-Man vibes. Um, so they concluded the trilogy. They concluded that storyline. And I think that they got out of it what they wanted. Yeah. So I have a couple of different th- Trinity thoughts. I think thematically it's kind of cool because you have this whole coming of age thing and he had never been confronted with the sort of the, the tragedy. So in, again, we'll get in more in depth later, but there's a you know, tragic event that occurs with Aunt May in the film where he's forced to grow up and, and uh, in one way that he's able to overcome his sort of grief and the, the suffering is to bond with the other Spider-Men, of course, which we'll get more in depth here, but so thematically, I think it works. The thing that's kind of weird to me, though, is I f- I feel like the, f- the the major elements that they'd set up in Far From Home were were not. It's not that they weren't there. J- Jameson was still here in the movie, of course, but he he played a significantly lesser role in the movie. the The second film played really big with like the whole fake news sort of thing coming with Mysterio, kind of like manufacturing stories, and of course, you know. Uh, really when he when he he ends the the last film on a mic drop with some like some true some fake info um i kind of expected them to follow that through a little more uh the movie be more about him coming to terms with his identity like the world coming to terms with his identity which this film was basically like yeah what if we did that but then for like 10 minutes and then we just abandoned that and did multiverse shenanigans the rest of the time (laughs) Um, I'm not mad about this. And I think thematically, like where the character needed to go was, was accomplished. So at the end of the day, I think it works. But again, I, I feel like the, the movie gets much more focused on a celebration of the past, all the past Spider-Man films, including the Sam Raimi trilogy, uh, the Mark Webb, Andrew Garfield, two films. Um, and then of course the Tom Holland films, I feel like it's almost more like a Spider-Man Avengers or Spider-Man seven or what yet? Yeah, three, five, eight, Spider-Man eight than it is Tom Holland's Spider-Man three. Uh, just, just, it feels like there's so many bigger things that come to play that really minimize, I think what felt like they were where they were really heading with originally with the third one. It doesn't like defeat the, the movie for me or whatnot, but I, I was, I was really eager to see Jameson get up there and really, and really start messing with the public perception. Um, and, and probably I assume like some sort of like, uh, some sort of like mob enforcer trying to like cut down Spider-Man, I think could have been pretty fun, but they didn't go that direction. Um, and I'm not going to review, you know, say, Oh, this movie's bad because it didn't do that. But I will say it just felt like the things that we've been building off of and one and two, they felt like they kind of just took a little bit of a left into like that larger story versus keeping it a little more down to earth. And there's even little elements, like even them trying to get into MIT, which I think is a really cool thread, but it just felt like in the, like, like if if the, if that had been like you know the B plot or the C plot of the last film, I still f- would have felt more invested. But in this one, I was like, yeah, that's cute and all, but multiverse. <laughs> it, it just it seems like it seems like such a small thing. Um, I obviously means a lot to the character. Um, so again, it still works. It just the the stakes kind of felt uh, a little more in line with like, hey, what if we just focused on bringing all the Spider Men together versus like really wrapping up a uh, more intimate story. That said, the film does end with, I think, the same way it would have always ended, which is uh, Peter Parker really uh, stepping into adulthood. Um, 
Uh, I guess just what last question here. I mean, did you guys feel like this film played, do you think it successfully lands the ship on those coming of age aspects that were major themes in the first two films? Chelsea, I'll start with you on this one. I would say no, just because, I mean, like you said, and like I kind of mentioned a minute ago, it's this movie got so big that those plot points that we saw in Homecoming and saw in Far From Home, where it's that, the grow, like you said, the coming of age that um, John Hughes kind of vibe, that's gone. Like we don't see that anymore. And the whole plot of them trying to get in, into MIT is literally just serving the character of Peter Parker realizing that he can't do this dual identity thing. Like it's not really even serving as setting up Peter Parker going into his future. It's just that is a plot device. Yeah, again, it just seems like with all the other things going on, I mean, it's not that's, and obviously I think the whole thing is like he wants his friends to get into MIT. When you put it up against the scope of what's actually occurring, as an audience at least, yeah. I felt like it was a little harder to be invested in that, even though it is mm-hmm. sort of, it really is sort of the driving mechanic, you know, for the carry, the driving force for the, why the character does, you know, does what he does. But Arthur, I want to turn to you here. I mean, it, it seemed like you were a little warmer on, on the, the John Hughes aspects. I mean, did you feel like this really landed the the ship, so to speak uh, with those coming of age aspects? I th- I think I'm kind of lining up probably a little closer with Chelsea on this one. I think this movie really does focus on the idea that Peter Parker has to accept his fate as the lone hero who must acknowledge this divide in his life. And that with this power, he's been granted does come a slew of responsibilities and, and we finally get to that part of the arc, which has traditionally always been story one material. And so in, in some ways, it kind of does feel like a prologue to a bigger Spider-Man narrative. But it, it really all does just start to play second fiddle or even third or fourth fiddle to the multiverse stuff and, and all the big bads. And so I think the other big thing here is the other thematic thread is, you know, he has to wrestle with being a superhero in Homecoming. Then he has to wrestle with the loss of Tony and far from home. And now he's kind of wrestling with that idea of being exposed and a celebrity and also facing this criticism. And that kind of goes with the Jay Jonas stuff that you mentioned, Caleb, which also falls flat, I think. And I think that's a big whiff. So I, I, I think it lands the plane, but the plane has probably lost an engine or two along the way. Yeah, it's like, it's like when you get to that last scene in the movie, you're like, OK, we got here. This was not in any way the route I thought we were going to take to get yeah. here. And maybe maybe, like you said, we lost a couple of engines along the way, but we made it. It was turbulent. <laughs> yes, very turbulent. <laughs> um, well, OK, I think that's going to segue really nicely into sort of like the next major topic I, I have here, which is, you know, is this film successfully telling an organic story or is this just fanciful fan service? And Maybe a bigger question is, can you do both? Can you do both? I think that's the que- a question, a challenge this film took on. And whether or not it su- succeeded, I, I think, is really going to be up to each individual viewer. Um, but, of course, let's start here just by talking about the the marketing uh, for this film. Because it, I, I think this movie really just sailed into the stratosphere whenever it was revealed officially in that first trailer uh, that villains from the, the past films uh, would be in the film. Uh, and we can thank uh, Alfred Molina and Jamie Foxx for both letting it slip <laughs> like months and months before the first trailer even came out that they were in the film. Um, but I, I have to, you have to ask the question. I mean, listen. I, I think, Arthur, you said one of your favorite parts of this movie was Alfred Molina. I second that. I also will. T- I'm like, listen, if Willem Dafoe's in this movie, I basically don't care how they get him here. Let, like, he's just here. So I'm, I'm down for it. I'm not mad about it. But, I mean, do you think this film 
is able to justify the use of these past villains, you know, to, to bring them in the story. I, obviously, there's going to be the you're going to see the mechanics a little bit because fan service. But does it justify that? Uh, Arthur, I'll, I'll throw it to you first. I think they're batting 500. I'm not sold on Lizard and Sandman. They they feel like such afterthoughts here, uh, especially Lizard, I think. Um, maybe, I don't know, he does motivate the plot a bit, so maybe Sandman's even more of an afterthought. Uh, and I think if it wasn't for Fox, it's just pure charisma. Uh, even Electra would be a little out of place. But I, I think Doc Ock and, and Goblin work well. I, I think they're really good here they're good foils and for where the narrative goes with the other uh, spiders men um i think it fits that and they just both bring such a unique heart i think to the movie in a way especially playing off parker especially doc ock uh, there's something so sympathetic about that character uh, that that really just plays well i think in any scenario here and so it, it feels 50-50. I don't know that I could justify all five of them. I also don't know why they just wouldn't put in a sixth at this point. Right? That, that felt like a big six? miss. Yeah, that, that felt like a an odd flex. But I, I, I don't know that I could justify all the villains here. Um, so it doesn't always work for me. Though they're fun to see. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I mean, especially when Thomas Hayden Church was like, yeah, I'm not going to appear in this film at all, but I'll do some VO. Maybe they should have been like, well, what if we cut him out? <laughs> also, he doesn't even he doesn't even fit like the, the thesis, which is all of these people died at yeah. the hands of Spider-Man. And neither does Lizard. Oh, you're right. Neither does neither the Lizard. Yeah. Lizard's last seen in prison at Ravencroft. Mm hmm. So and if they had died, I was I honestly was kind of expecting and I totally forgot about the lizard, but I was kind of expecting that to maybe be like a line in there where they're like, oh, later we didn't see it. But Spider-Man accidentally killed him. I don't know that, you know, because that was sort of the, the hypo like the thesis that the, the trailer pose and the movie pose, which is why well, it's Spider-Man's fault. These people all died anyway. So let's go fix it. Yeah. OK. So it's not really consistent. OK. Yeah. OK. I see. Well, Chelsea, I'll turn to you, though. I mean, what, what, what was your thought on how the, the villains were used? Does, it justify, does the film justify the use of all these characters? This film is literally like the epitome of the conversation of fan service versus good writing. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> like, can you get any more obvious that we're like bringing in everybody on the nostalgia front to take your money? But I think that because of just how iconic some of the actors are, William Dafoe, Alfred Molina, I mean, like you said, Jamie Foxx is just eating everything up whenever he's on on screen i think that they able they were able to justify it um but it was also really smart from a business decision um so kind of taking like this like the step out of even just the storytelling front this was the easiest franchise that they could that marvel could use to introduce the multiverse i mean you've seen i mean we saw like days of future past they messed with their timeline there um my theory has always been that DC was going to use Flashpoint to retcon the Snyderverse anyways. Um, but Marvel saying we have three Spider-Men, we can use that to really explain the multiverse was just the smartest thing that they could do. So bringing those characters in was just smart business. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, smart, in, in, in smart business, that's a great point, Chelsea, because uh, this film did make uh, over $260 million uh, over this, this past weekend. And it's first weekend. So... 
COVID be damned, uh, it it is gross more than every Star Wars movie opening weekend, and the most in re- most of the Avengers movies, including Infinity War. The only film that has it beat is Endgame, which again is a is a mighty feat for a, a Spider Man film. So I, I do think that the again from the going at the from the business perspective, being able to market those villains in the trailers was just chef's kiss. I mean, I I know that was when I got started to get really excited for it. Um, so I think it works out, but I'm more, I'm going to land more in the Arthur camp overall on this one. I don't think about half the villains are really, they're just, they kind of feel like cannon fodder, uh, you know, because the lizard feels like he's there to make a couple of quick quips. And then, um, Sandman, I, I think the idea was they were just trying to bring in a Spider-Man three villain, I guess. I don't know exactly what the thesis was there. Venom is a whole other can of worms that I'm sure <laughs> uh, Marvel and Disney don't want to have to open up right now, as we saw in the post credits stinger. Daddy. At the end of the day, there are several key moments that I, for me personally, justified the use of these characters, but it did feel a little, little forced from time to time. But you do raise a good point, Chelsea, in terms of not necessarily this film, but the larger cinematic universe. This is a really probably the only franchise they could have done this with where they're saying, hey, multiple versions. Here's the multiverse. And look, you can bring all three of these people together because it all exists in one. That was something I hadn't even considered. Let's talk about one of the worst kept secrets about the film was the return of Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. Again, I want to pose the same question. Uh, does this film justify the use of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield? Chelsea, I'll turn it to you on this one. I think that Marvel could have justified bringing them in whether or not they brought the villains in, actually. Um, because we are at this inflection point in Peter Parker's life where he's post-Stark He's struggling with that sense of identity. So having um, Toby and Andrew come in as their iterations of Spider-Man was really, for me, showing Peter what his future can look like. It's helping him take that next step into adulthood and kind of grow with the story. Especially when you're you're thinking about the where we talk about like the larger theme, which is him leaning into adulthood. The the scene on in Queens where the, we, we get to see the three of them come together for the first time. Just packs a wallop, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Arthur, what did you what did you think? Uh, overall, good use of uh, some nostalgia fodder with uh, Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I agree uh, with Chelsea on this one. I, I think that they are really do serve a really interesting role and function within Peter Parker's life here as someone who has is recently going through this tragedy. They have both gone through their own unique personal tragedies as well, and so they are both able to come in with their own background experiences. And and I love that they have portrayed them as, you know, two different paths that, that I think Peter could go down with Toby kind of becoming this wiser, gentler Spider-Man and Andrew at the other, you know, end of that spectrum uh, to, you know, guide uh, Tom Holland's Peter Parker, the direction he needs to go. And, and I think that's a really cool moment. And, and yeah, them, them being on screen together is something magical about that i think there was you know fan service or not i think there was just something very very cool about that and so i i yeah i justify it easily 
Well, yeah, let's, I mean, let's dig into some of those moments. I mean, I, I honestly think the strongest scenes in the whole movie were that was the, the three of them, just sw- whether it was swapping stories, whether it was the bonding over tragedy, the scene with all working together in the lab. I mean, the jokes were so funny. Uh, the scene where Ned asks P- uh, Toby McGuire, <laughs> he's like, so do you have a best friend? And Toby McGuire says, I did. He died in his, in my arms right after he tried to kill me. <laughs> it was like one of the funniest jokes in the whole movie. Um, I, and yeah. I, I like I, I I they here's the thing I expected them to be in this film in more of a cameo role so obviously they don't really show up until Act Three but the movie really doesn't doesn't uh, spare any expense with the use of these characters uh, I I like how the film also in a lot of ways feels like we get some closure on those characters so yeah. you know may we remind folks that we never got a, the an end to the the Sam Raimi films, it was just, they just stopped making the movies and went on and did the Andrew Garfield movies. And then the Andrew Garfield movies did the same thing. They just stopped making them and went on to the Tom Holland movies. So it, it never really felt like we had, you know, seen those, those characters, what, whatever happened to them, you know, did, did we find out whether Tobey Maguire, his Spider-Man was able to make, uh, make it up with MJ? Because again, if you go back and watch Spider-Man three, which I know a lot of people don't like, uh, I actually think it's, it's, better than people give it credit for. But going back to that, that movie kind of ends on a big question mark of whether or not uh, Peter and Mary Jane are going to be able to resolve sort of the self-imposed tragedy that, that Peter creates in that film. Um, so, I mean, I, I thought, I thought it was a great way to sort of put a pen in those characters. If we never see them again, you can kind of take away that sort of closure and even little moments like uh, being able to see Andrew Garfield, whenever MJ falls off the statue of Liberty, he's able to swing in and, and catch her and like, is that fan service? Yeah. But whenever he starts crying, because like you just feel yeah. it because you're like, oh, my God, because it, he let Emma Stone just as Gwen Stacy, just she didn't make it, you know, so it was sort of a, a chance for him to to feel a little bit of redemption in that moment uh, again. So, like, I, I do think this is actually more so than the villains. I, I feel like the use of the Spider-Man really feels like it accomplishes a lot both uh for fans but also from a uh, storytelling perspective as well um i i feel like if we never see toby mcguire or andrew garfield we'll know kind of where those characters stand and they were able to help push tom holland's spider-man into the spider-man as we know it he's gonna be he he doesn't have all the, the the fancy gear of Tony Stark. No one knows who he is. You know he has to start out in his crummy apartment with the the guy be- telling him begging him for rent. You know, uh, like like all all of it seems to work together pretty well for me. Um, so I think it's a home run. Um, and the fact that I sort of I think most of us probably expected them to be in the film. The thing that was I was much more excited about with was how they were going to use them and how effectively they were going to use them. I think that was actually probably one of the strongest elements uh, of the film for me uh so i'll just kind of turn it over here uh, to kind of wrap up this topic i mean how overall how would you guys say the return of these characters how does this add or take away from what's been established before i kind of played my hand a little bit early there mm-hmm. uh, but chelsea I'll, I'll pass it to you what, what are your thoughts i think the biggest thing that the return of these characters does which is i kind of already mentioned it before was it helps push peter into his own identity um, homecoming, he was Tony Stark's protege, um, far from home. He was, he lost his mentor. He doesn't know what's happening, um, where he's going to go from there. And now in no way home, he has realized that sense of identity that he needed to have. So that's what I, I think that that overall is just what those characters added to this movie. 
was mm-hmm. kind of breaking that breaking that connection with Stark that we've had the whole time. Absolutely. Arthur? Uh, I think I'm with you, Caleb. For me, it, it is that closure that we get for uh, Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Um, you know, like you said, both of those stories are just left dangling, especially Garfield's, I, I think, is left in a lot worse place than Maguire's. So to get a bit more depth on what became of those two was fun. And to get redemption for both of them with uh, Garfield and MJ on the bridge, which which is a very uh, great moment. Uh, but also, I think, with uh, Toby getting to cure uh, Goblin, I think, is a really cool moment as well. And so for them to both have that closure, I think, is really cool. And so that that, to me, is the biggest thing. Wasn't it just, I mean, I, gosh, yeah, I mentioned the Andrew Garfield, MJ catch, but like um, the scene where Peter, Toby Maguire's Peter stops Tom Holland from impaling the goblin with the glider. Oof. Yeah. Man, he's, he's like, I've been thinking about how to stop this for years, you know, like just, ah, just cuts deep. And it's good they did stuff. Not pull, yeah, they didn't pull those emotional punches at all. <laughs> no, no. And I'm glad they didn't because, you know, I, I think it, that's the thing. If they had handled, if they hadn't handled this as well as they did, it, this whole thing could have just felt like really cheap, lazy fan service. But like they, th- there was so much attention and care that was put into the use of these characters um, that it, it all just kind of came together and resonated. Oh, we didn't even talk about the the joke with the web sh- uh, shooters. Gosh, <laughs> I, I know it's fan service, but it's so fun because I actually had the same question. I was like, I wonder if they're going to address the web. Sh-. I literally was like, I wonder if they're going to address the web shooter differences. And they totally did. You know, like it just it's fan service, but it works. Yeah. Uh, okay, well let's uh, let's move a little more into the the larger multiverse story here. I mean, we've talked about the shenanigans that we get, you know, with the return of all these past Spider-Man characters. Uh, let's let's look back here. I mean, three years ago we were treated to the Oscar-winning, may I add, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, and the MCU post-Endgame has gone, you know, in this act for the multiverse. Uh, I mean, we've seen it in several. Disney plus shows like Loki and what if uh, do you all think that the incorporation here works or do you feel like this was a little bit too much of a gimmick for this particular story? Chelsea, I'll turn it to you here because you already seem like you kind of tipped your hand a little bit earlier. I mean, you seem like you think th- thought it worked pretty well. Can you elaborate for us? I think it worked well for Spider-Man, Peter Parker's story. Like that's, that's how we were going to get that character there. Or however, Marvel wanted to deal with it. But by the end of it, it did feel a little bit like a gimmick for me. Um, And that's mostly just because it kind of felt like they were treating this movie as a multiverse for dummies article, like kind of an aside. Like we we got Spider-Man's growth and we we needed all of that. But the whole vehicle for this movie was explaining the multiverse because we're getting ready to go into multiverse of madness. And we've seen Loki and... um, whatever effects we're going to have from what if and WandaVision. Um, and at the end, when we have the resolution to the multiverse plotline, like that, the, that resolution almost isn't even mashing up with Mar- Marvel's already done with Loki. So I'm not really sure where they're at with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be, I can't wait until there's a little, just a little more multiverse content comes out and fans on the internet, try to map it up and see how it all connects somehow. Um, it's going to be wild. Arthur, what, what did you think of, of the use of the multiverse in this film? I, I don't mind it. I, I think it's a fun direction, you know, for the story to go. It's obviously the big driving factor, uh, for Marvel now as we go to this next phase. So, 
Uh, this feels like a moment where they can really kickstart those ideas on a big screen. Uh, we've obviously seen it on Disney Plus, but I think more audiences will see it here uh, probably first uh, and then get built out in the following movies and shows. And so it, it, it does bother me. I, I think it does have some gimmickiness to it, but it, it never really distracted from the, the story for me. Yeah, no, I, I think I'd echo your sentiment there, Arthur. It it, it feels a little gimmicky, and, and Chelsea, as you say, um, multiverse for dummies uh, <laughs> throughout. But I mean, I think, though, to your point, most people, I would say the vast majority of audiences probably haven't seen Loki and probably haven't seen What If. So this is like, the, like you said, their first exposure to it. So they almost like are presenting the, the dumbed down version with the most accessible character they have as a way to sort of set up what it looks like we're going to get in the next Dr. Strange movie, which I'm super excited for that. Um, but yeah, it, it did feel a little gimmicky, uh, you know, uh, again, I, it's a, uh, you kind of, like I was saying earlier, you can see the gears, like whenever they use it and they deploy it, it just feels you're like, well, I feel like this is almost, this is tiptoeing right up to a cheat a few times, but you're like, but then the, the delivery of the, the, the moments that we've already discussed really justify it enough for me not to say it's a total gimmick. Um, but it, it works enough, I think, but, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about the, the Dr. Strange of it all actually. Uh, so firstly, Peter has a million different things he could ask Dr. Strange to do that don't involve like this memory spell. Why can't he just, have Dr. Strange like cast a spell on the MIT admissions office. I don't know. Um, like, um, so I, anyway, I, so, so Dr. Strange kind of shows up. There's a, I would say what the, in the first act of the film, um, it's very Dr. Strange heavy. He's sort of like talking about the multiverse and the, and the dummy speak as Chelsea put it. Um, and we get a really cool action sequence with him. Actually, that was one of the stronger ones in the film uh, where him and Peter, uh, Peter are duking it out in the, the mirror world. Uh, did you guys feel like Dr. Strange was put to good use uh, in this film? Uh, Arthur, I'll start with you. Uh, it's, it's a hit or miss for me. And part of it is Steven's portrayal here seems off. I know in the past on these collaborations, the teams work together to ensure, you know, accurate characterization. Uh, I, I know that, Waititi would work with the teams for Thor and those guys and Derrickson would come in and work with the strange. And so with Derrickson out, I don't know where that left the character here, but there was some line like the Scooby-Doo line is weird. There's just some ways in which he is portrayed that feel off. And I know a lot of people thought that was just hints of something else there uh, with strange. And so it, it's hit or miss. Like you said, that, that mirrors uh, mirror, uh, universe stuff is really cool uh that that whole sequence is, is a lot of fun to watch uh where he's slinging circles and spider-man's catching himself and uh, i think that's a great action sequence but i, I don't know it, it just it, it it's not quite working for me i don't think yeah i know i'm with you because I, I just feel like the idea that the sorcerer supreme would like carelessly i mean again the characterization of Dr. Strange, we've really only seen him in one solo film and a bunch of other team up films. So it's hard to pin down with a hundred percent certainty to say it's inconsistent, but it's just hard to imagine like this Sorcerer Supreme, no, very few questions asked just as like, Hey, yeah, I'll cast this memory spell. No big deal. I'm like, I know you guys work together and stuff and they lay it out, but it just felt like uh, quite a big gamble and 
didn't make him look very smart. I'll put it that way. I mean, Chelsea, what, what did you think? Um, so for one thing, I'd like to point out um, that in a super quick aside, we know that Stephen Strange is not the Sorcerer Supreme mm-hmm. right now. Um, it's Wong. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. <laughs> um, which is just funny. Cause like, that was yeah, funny. That was just like a really quick. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, great. That's what we know that character as. So, um, but also, so, sorry, just one. I just want to quickly note before we move on from Wong, he's turn. He's quickly turning into the Nick Fury of this phase, apparently. <laughs> so just because <laughs> he even leaves it on such a note where you're like, oh, he's he's going to come back and probably in the Doctor Strange movie and be like, what the heck, dude? Right. Yeah. Um, and that's what I kind of think that's what the what you were kind of getting at with the characterization of Strange was there. I felt like they were trying to give him like that Tony Starky snarkiness mm-hmm. was going on there. Yeah. So that's kind of what the Scooby Doo vibe thing was. But um, I think that Doctor Strange, no matter how much I love Benedict Cumberbatch and his portrayal of him, I really think that Doctor Strange was a convenient character to use. Um, and I say that because he literally disappears. Like he casts a spell, and then we don't see him ever again until the third act. So if he was that, if he was that central to the story i think they would have kept him around more yeah i know uh, i mean that, i'm right there with you and that's again one of those where you're like you can kind of see the you know the, mm-hmm. the man behind the curtain like the, the, the story elements you, you kind of like they're just it feels a little forced and a little silly and a little like they were looking for like a, a quick way to accomplish some things but you know um it it, it accomplished i mean again how do you cast a spell like this and how do you make a multiverse happen. You go to Dr. Strange and they made it work well enough, but it felt, uh, felt a little, a uh, little un, uh, strange is, or maybe a little too strange ish. <laughs> uh, let, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about his involvement in the end though. So we, we've talked a lot about his involvement at the beginning where he kind of lays out the multiverse, but this memory spell that they, they try to cast at the beginning, they cast at the end here. And this actually serves a lot of different purposes. So essentially Dr. Strange cast the spell and, People no longer know who Peter Parker is, I assume, in this universe. Uh, And so Spider-Man exists, but no one knows Peter Parker, Spider-Man. No one knows Peter Parker, period. Mm -hmm. His aunt is dead. So literally, Peter Parker is out there on his own. Nobody knows who he is. Fresh slate for him in a lot of ways. Were you guys, did you guys find this uh, memory spell to be a a really effective way to sort of set the stage for what we're going to see in the next chapter, Spider-Man? Chelsea, I'll start with you. I think that Marvel's still in the early stages of really establishing their rules of magic and their rules of time. Um, and so I don't know if it was a satisfying way because I think that Marvel's going to be able to undo it whenever they want to undo it. Mm-hmm. Um, like this isn't a fixed point in time. Like if we're going to go uh, like all Doctor who on it, like it's like this isn't where the Doctor can't go back to the 25 and visit the ponds. Like it's done and over with. But um I think that potentially we're going to see a a thing in the future where all of a sudden, like maybe just Nick Fury remembers who Peter Parker is kind of thing, but maybe, maybe not. Also, they mentioned Nick Fury in passing and never went back to that moment, but we're not, we're not even going to talk about that. (laughs) Another plot thread from the last Spider-Man movie. They didn't, they didn't pick up, but that's okay. Mm. Um, Arthur, what'd you think? I mean, did this memory spell, were you pretty set? Was this like a satisfactory way to, to sort of help the character get where they ultimately wanted him to go by the end of the movie? Uh, I, I, I have questions. I'm not really a plot holes logic guy, but this one has me scratching my head. I, I, it feels like a cheap out, uh, 
But with that Doctor Strange preview trailer, I'm kind of wondering if, if along the same lines, I think of Chelsea, I think that this is feeling like a bandage uh, rather than a complete fix. And I think Faggy and the MCU gods know it's not a long-term solution and it's going to go haywire uh, down the line. And I think that maybe some of that's getting alluded to in uh, the Multiverse of Madness preview trailer thing. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know that it is super great. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm with both of you guys. I actually, again, this is one of those, we got the character where they wanted him to go, but it's such a weird way to get him there. And it involves a magic memory spell that makes everyone forget who Peter Parker is. Um, again, just sort of a really Saturday morning cartoon esque. And as a guy who recommended a Saturday morning cartoon along with both, uh, with Arthur, at least uh, earlier in the show, I want to say that's, that's not meant to be uh, a knock, but like it, it it's a big kind of shortcut that's left to me also scratching my head. Here's my like conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat. Um, I don't know if you guys recall, but there was almost a point where Spider-Man was not going to be in the MCU after no way home. Like there was a legit, the contract was up. They, they mm-hmm. thought it was over. Um, and then I guess Amy Pascal and Kevin Feige or whoever they, 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 they the, the MCU Sony gods got together and made it work for another film. Well, uh, this is also the uh, the last one of Sony's um, films that they have with like uh, they actually are, have license with the MCU films. So I read like an interview where essentially the um, head of Sony had said it was uh, they sort of swapped it off. So because they use Doctor Strange in the Spider-Man movie, they can use Spider-Man in another event movie. And then like then their obligations are officially done. Um, so the reason I mentioned that is because I, the way the movie sets it up, like if, if for some reason they decided they wanted to not work together and just like have like self-contained universes again, this would be a natural way to, I mean, like a natural time to break that off. Um, I mean, I don't want that to happen. And after as much money, seeing as much money as this film is making, I have serious doubts at whether or not that's going to fall through. But, you know, theoretically after Spidey's next appearance in a Marvel film, they don't have to work together again. And the way this film ends with Spider-Man in a very much more uh, more adult chapter where it seems like they've stripped away most of the MCU elements. And even the way Doctor Strange goes on about those of us who've grown to know you and love you forever, we're going to forget you forever. Like it, it almost feels like a little bit of a potential goodbye. There's ambiguity there if they can take it either way. But my hypothesis is they position this film so that they're not in another no way home situation where they need the MCU characters to show up for it to work. Um, either way, I still think it just, that's all like total speculation and, and, and doesn't really uh, impact my reading of the film. Ultimately, I just think it's a really lazy way for them to get to that point, honestly, but I don't know. Any other thoughts? You guys have any other thoughts about the weird contract MCU Sony relationship? I don't know if I have any questions about that. I think my question goes back to, the story of if what happens when Strange's spell is broken, <laughs> um, because he basically told us that that's a band aid to fix the bad spell that broke the multiverse. So if this spell gets broken, do are we broken again? Like, is the whole multiverse mm. going to collapse on itself when they take that band aid off? Mm. Questions. Mm-hmm. What's well, a good thing? There's a trailer for uh, uh, Multiverse of Madness at the uh, at the very end of the credits for this film, Chelsea, to to tease you up for the next chapter. 
Uh, okay, well, I think uh, just the, the last thing here, I mean, I want to close it out by bringing it back to Tom Holland's Spider-Man in the future. As we mentioned earlier, I mean, Uncle Ben here hasn't really been a figure in the MCU. Uh, the MCU and it really seemed like that piece of his backstory was missing. So I want to just really dive into the Aunt May death because it's a pretty significant one. I mean, how does the death of Aunt May really set this Peter Parker up to become that more iconic Spider-Man who's living in the cheap apartment? Like, you know, how does this, from more of a story perspective, set him up on that trajectory? Chelsea? I thought it was interesting that that's what they chose to do with Aunt May. It kind of, it kind of sent, it felt like where we were with Peter Parker when we saw him, when we met him at Homecoming is that we were already post- potentially this event in his life. So we were already seeing him on that road. Um, But I don't know if it worked for me. That's just because I come from the place of, did we kill her to forward a male story? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't know if it totally worked for me. It was, it was really well done. I think in terms of like the emotional beats and I think Tom Holland did a fantastic job of portraying that emotion and what that's doing to him as he goes forward. I just don't know if that worked for me just as like a story device though. So, so would you say that that the, the, the Aunt May death felt pretty forced? I think it felt like it was something that Marvel decided that they needed to have happen to move that character, that he needed to have that moment of just grief and, you know, he's really just torn down and now He's going to go out and he's going to fight the goblin and the other Spider-Men are going to have to be like, look, you cannot be this vengeful Spider-Man. So it definitely just set up his story. Uh, Chelsea, that is a great point. How how many times have women died in Spider-Man movies slash stories in order to afford his plot? Yeah, it's a good I think it's a really good thing to just stop and pause and think about because i haven't heard a lot of people talk about that uh, at least about this film specifically arthur how about you i mean what was your take on uh you know the the death of aunt may and i mean do you think that it really successfully sets peter up to sort of embrace a more traditional spider-man role i think emotionally it doesn't work really for me because we just never really get aunt may to be built up to be a real character i think is, is kind of a narrative failing of all three films uh, we don't really see her at all in the sequel of Far From Home. Uh, and then here, it feels like we do get a little more of her because I think it's leading to this moment. Uh, narratively, I I don't know. I, I, I'm i torn because, like Chelsea said, I, I hate that they have to fridge the girl, right, just to uh, move this along. Um, but I, I – and I don't know. I, I've, as she was talking, I was thinking about it. He's already kind of had this moment with Tony. I mean, Tony wasn't murdered by a bank robber that was his own fault or whatever – but that kind of felt maybe like his Uncle Ben moment. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could off Ned, but I don't know if it has that same impact. So I, I'm torn. Maybe it does feel forced. Uh, I, it does get us the great power, great responsibility moment finally, uh, which I think is uh, what we've been waiting for for three films. And um, I don't know. I, I think narratively it, it works mostly for me, but I, I do question that decision because it does look kind of bad, I think. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, I don't know that they've put in the legwork in the previous three films with Aunt May to really establish that a, ra- a relationship. I mean, by and large, she's been more of a comedic relief character. I mean, she had the flirtatious relationship with Tony. That was a punchline. And mm-hmm. um, 
Homecoming. And I just didn't feel like she had a ton of screen time in Far From Home, really. So, I mean, you raise a good point. You know, so like why Fridge, uh, another woman character who's not even like super well developed, but because it's another one of those things where you're like, well, in order for him to get to this point, he, he has to experience loss. Well, who's the closest one in his life? What's Aunt May? But they haven't always set her up, positioned her in that way. So it feels a little a little forced. I, I, I'm with you. I, I honestly didn't think that that moment didn't work as well for me either. Um, Chelsea, uh, not for the reasons you mentioned, though, probably I think I think you probably are. It means a lot more than me. It just it just felt like really, again, you could feel the mechanics of the story just grinding along. And it's like, well, he's got to have lost somehow. And it just it felt a little forced to me. And the fridging actually makes it extra bad. So, um, yeah. Yeah, not a great moment, at least for this crew. I know there's. I've seen a lot of people and heard a lot of people who felt like like wept in that scene. And if if it did, that's that's great. Uh, but uh, I I too, Arthur, like you, um, am sort of questioning whether that was the right decision or whether the movie even earned that sort of emotional moment with that character. I, but let's uh, let's uh, let's start to wind down here by talking about where we'd like to see the character go next, because whether or not uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe is in the picture or not, it sounds like we're getting three more Spider-Man films. Um, again, I think the reports are sort of implying that Marvel's going to be uh, involved, but I'd love to just hear from you guys. I mean, what, what do you want to see next for Spider-Man? And it sounds like Tom Holland is on board for the three films. Uh, Arthur, how, wh- where would you like to see him go next? Uh, I think it's interesting where we leave him. He's He's got this ratty apartment. And he's got his GED study book. He's in a really curious place personally. He's got nothing, nobody. Uh, but he also seems to have some sort of personal hope or peace when we leave him, I think. Uh, so I think it'll finally be time to see a Spider-Man who isn't constantly bungling the job at hand, but who still has to fight from below. Uh, we assume he'll be off to college, maybe getting a job as a photographer or even a videographer. Uh, maybe he'll come up against a larger adversary in J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, and, and so I think in some ways, like I mentioned earlier, this does kind of feel like a prologue to a bigger Spider-Man story, which I think is cool. Uh, and, and really, there's just so many. I mean, he's got such a great rogues gallery that there are so many great places you can take him. Uh, I, I assume the symbiote suit will show up soon. But I guess time will tell. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. I, I want to put a pin on that. We'll, we'll circle back. I'm going to circle back on that symbiote scene here again because I, I didn't put that in the show notes, but I, I think it's important because I want to talk about it. Um, Chelsea, though, wh- where would you like to see Tom Holland's Spider-Man go next? I think I'm really excited to see Tom Holland as the like on the ground Spider-Man. He's been involved in these huge galactic things that he's really was taken out of the element that I think a lot of fans appreciate him more in. Um, So I'm just really excited to see him kind of on the ground dealing with that rogues gallery and it being a little bit more of a traditional Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I'd, I'd echo that sentiment. Um, Again, I, I, I kind of said at the top, I really wanted to see him take on Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin and, so long as Marvel and Sony can work it out, that seems like a very distinct possibility. Um, I, I, him fighting more the the street level villains, being the friendly neighborhood st- Spider Man, because so up to this point he's always had Avengers baggage, and again, it's worked really well because it, you know when we saw him in all the Avengers films and we saw him in a homecoming and far from home. That was something we had never seen before. So it was great to, to get the Avengers elements injected into the Spider-Man stories, 
But honestly, I think it's it's given us some time away from like the more traditional stories like we saw in uh, the original Sam Raimi trilogy, where you're actually seeing how the people of New York are reacting to Spider-Man. What do they think? Um, I yeah, and Arthur, you mentioned J. Jonah Jameson. I really hope that they bring back J.K. Simmons again and, and amp up that tension there, uh, because I love the idea that J- Jameson is sort of. Uh, becoming this like uh, alt-right sort of like podcast uh, or YouTuber like we see in this movie. I'd love to see like uh, the sort of kind of like a uh, war of public opinion play out um, in the Spider-Man movie uh, as well. And, and so I'm just really excited again for us to return to a more focused Spider-Man story that is a little has fewer Avengers related uh, tie-ins. I'm, I'm sure again, as long as, uh, it's in the MCU. Those will be there. However, I think the way they sort of set this up and where they leave it, it feels like we're going to get to see a Peter who's a little more focused on Peter establishing himself, growing and becoming, the, I think, the hero that we've, you know, are most familiar with. OK, let's circle back on the symbiote, though. So, again, this is like all meta speculation. But did you guys see Venom? Let there be carnage. Either of you, it's okay if you haven't. I haven't seen it. Actually. Yes. I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. 100% saw it. Okay. It's the last I thing I saw in theaters before this. Yes. <laughs> so, so I haven't seen it. I just read about it. So the, the post credit stinger for that movie is that he sees the news flash of uh, J. Jonah Jameson revealing Peter Parker's identity, right? So the, the post credit scene is like you see the flash of the spell and it's pulling him into the MCU. And then he sees, yeah, JK Simmons like on TV and he's like, Spider-Man is Peter Parker. And then there's this curious, like Venom somehow interested in Spider-Man, but we've never, he's never met Spider-Man. Yeah. So that, and that's in Venom, let there be carnage. That's yeah. That's the post credit. Yeah. So this one, he just has been drunk at a bar the entire time. Right. Go ahead. Entire time though is, not that long in No Way Home. Like, really, the events of this movie don't take place over particularly. <laughs> a, a, yeah, it's like a few days, maybe. It doesn't even feel like it's that long. So, from the from him bringing brought brought over to when he gets returned. Spoiler. It's yeah. He's probably been in there like a day or so, wandering around trying to figure out where he's at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it it just feels like the most absurd workaround to introduce the symbiote into the MCU. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't get it. It's it's very bizarre because they they go out of their way to show that there's a lo- little drop of the symbiote left in the MCU. So again, this is hyper speculation. Um, I feel like Amy Pascal and the, and the wigs at Sony really want Venom to be in the MCU, and Kevin Feige's like, no, not your Venom, because. Because just I just gotta say, totally these movies, these things cannot be more different. Like, I, and I enjoyed the first Venom movie for what it's worth. It's silly, it's goofy. Tom Hardy's having a blast, but like, it, one thing is not like the other. So it feels like a kind of a weird. If they were to exist in the same universe, it would be very strange to me. Um, so I'm like wondering if this was their way of like them being like, well, Marvel, Disney's like, yeah, no, we, we're not gonna put Venom in the movie. So they're like, well, but, but what about a post credit stinger? You know, I don't know. I don't know how it works. It just it just seems like such a weird, absurd inclusion in this movie. Caleb, you're not wrong, but I would pay large sums of money to see Tom Hardy face off against (laughs) Spider-Man. I mean, I would, too. Don't get me wrong. Okay, my question is, 
do you want it to be Tom Holland Spider-Man? Yes, I, I, I want that Tom Hardy Venom in the MCU. I, I want it <laughs> to be weird and freaky and campy. You know what, Arthur? You might have persuaded me because it would be really funny to see how they like incorporate him into the story. Why not? Why not? Last thing I'm just going to throw out there and see if you guys had noticed this or had any thoughts. Avi Arad got credited. He got the most, the weirdest credit I've ever seen. Like the credits literally break and there's a huge paragraph thanking him for his vision for the future of the characters and whatnot. Don't know what it means. Um, Avi Arad, for those of you who are not familiar, is a producer who was instrumental in the the Sam Raimi, producing the Sam Raimi trilogy and bring the original Spider-Man to the big screen. He also produced stuff like Elektra, um, or sorry, Daredevil and Elektra. I feel like there was a couple others, but he, he was really instrumental in those earlier films. He still produces the Venom movies. Um, I want to say he might have done the first Hulk movie by Ang Lee. Maybe I have to go back and check. But uh, yeah, anyway, I don't know. Did you guys did you guys notice that? It was kind of bizarre, right? I can't say I noticed it. And so when looking up the your your notes for this, um, I did see headlines about it. Um, and I think it might have just been maybe Marvel kind of like sucking up a little bit. I don't know, because there's something about him and Kevin being like on the outs. Yeah. Yeah, it, it did kind of have that weird self-congratulatory thing to it. I, I agree with Chelsea. It felt maybe like, hey, yeah, we're all great. Cool. Um, but because it is a weird, I mean, he's not dead, so it's a weird, but I guess it's 20 years of Spider-Man. He was kind of instrumental in launching that, but it's, it's like weird that they're congratulating themselves on it. I don't know. Yeah, it's bizarre. Again, my tinfoil hat is that they, for some reason needed him for like some key favor to make something in this movie happen. And he's like, only if you like put this in the credits, I don't know. That's, that's total. Like there's no evidence for that whatsoever, but it just, it was such a bizarre thing, Arthur. Cause like you said, if he had died or something, it would kind of have made sense. You'd be like, Oh yeah, this guy was instrumental. Let's remember him finally. No, he's still alive. He's still producing the next venom movie. Like, so (laughs) that's how they got venom in this. That was the agreement. They had to put that in the credits so they could get venom. They get venom. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Chelsea and Arthur, it's been such a pleasure having you guys on today and talking about the, you know, the biggest movie of 2021, the biggest movie since Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, actually. So the biggest movie we've seen in like two years. Uh, It's been a blast. Such a fun movie to talk about with two fantastic guests like yourselves. I want to give you an opportunity to tell listeners where they can keep up with you and your work at uh, online. So Arthur, I'll start with you. Where can people find you at? Uh, Yeah, you can go over to goodtrashmedia.com. Check us out. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at goodtrashmedia or look us up on your podcatcher of choice other than Spotify because we haven't worked that out yet. Otherwise, uh, you can find us and listen to us there. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Always a pleasure to talk about movies with you, Arthur. Uh, Chelsea, how about you? Where can people find you and your work online? Um, so the best place you can find me is on everybody's favorite platform, Twitter. Um, you can follow me at CinephileChels, um, and you'll get a, a nice digest of politics and news and movies and God only knows what else. <laughs> <laughs> All the fun stuff can can confirm. Chelsea's a great follow. Uh, and of course, if you want to keep up with uh, more things we're doing here at the Cinematropolis, you can head on over to the Cinematropolis.com or you can follow us on Twitter at the Cinematrop or going to Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash the Cinematropolis. You can find me tweeting about uh, mostly movies, but sometimes video games and television uh, on Twitter at C Masters Talk. That is letter C Masters Talk. 
Uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to join us in our next episode that is coming to you in just a couple of days as a little bit of a Christmas present. That's right. On Christmas Eve, we're going to be dropping our review of The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, this is one movie uh, we had an entire trilogy recap that you can go listen to right now. One of my most anticipated movies of the year. Hope you'll check it out. We'll catch you again next time.